0: Welcome to Media at Risk, a podcast from the Center for Media at Risk at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. My name is Liz Hallgren, and I'm a doctoral student at the school and a member of the center's steering committee. Today's episode focuses on the current conflict in Ukraine, both as it's playing out today and the events that led to it. I'm pleased to introduce our guests, this year's Center for Media at Risk Visiting Scholars and Practitioners, who are experts in Ukraine and the region, with specialties across journalism, film, mis- and disinformation, and more. So first is Yevon Fedchenko, who is the co-founder and chief editor at StopFake.org, a fact-checking website and leading hub on Russian disinformation. He is also the director of the Mohyla School of Journalism at the National University of Kiev Mohyla Academy in Ukraine. And next we have Olena Lysenko, who is a documentary filmmaker, producer, fixer, and freelance journalist from Ukraine. This year, she is also a visiting practitioner with the Center for Media at Risk. Just this year, her short film "I Never Had Dreams of My Son." received the Special Jury Recognition Award for Best Documentary Short at the 2022 New Orleans Film Festival. And finally, Daria Orlova is a media researcher and senior lecturer at the Mihaila School of Journalism, National University of Kiev Mihaila Academy. Daria studies the transformation of Ukrainian media and journalism, journalists' professional identity and post-Euromade in Ukraine, and media use amongst the Ukrainian border populations. So thank you all so much for being here today and welcome.
1: Thanks for inviting.
2: Thank
0: you for having us.
2: Great to be here.
0: So I'd like to start today by thinking about where we are now. The full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia happened in February 2022, and now here we are in May of 2023. So I'd like to start by getting your thoughts on where we are now a year after this important milestone in the conflict
2: it is important to stress that the war has not been happening for the last year, but rather for the last nine years. Uh, but certainly the full-scale invasion changed a lot so and impacted many more people in Ukraine in much more harsh ways. So if you are asking where are we now, so the simple answer would be that we are still at war, unfortunately. So it's even though it might be less visible on uh, television or in other media, the scale of military action is really high and the death toll is extremely high for Ukrainians, for you, both for the army but also for the civilians.
3: Yeah, as a documentary filmmaker, I'm actually thinking about this year's Sundance Film Festival that took place in January 2022 and one of its competitions included the uh, experimental Ukrainian documentary Iron Butterflies directed by Roman Lyubay. So, This film is about the events in 2014 when Malaysia Airlines flight MH17, which was coming from Netherlands to Malaysia, was shut down by Russian forces over uh, eastern Ukraine, killing around 300 civilians. So at that time, people in Ukraine hoped that if the world did not react strongly enough to the annexation of Crimea, the Russian aggression in the east of Ukraine, and if the world didn't feel For Ukrainians, you know, the world at least would react to the deaths of innocent people, citizens from around the world. Uh, But it unfortunately didn't happen. And uh, that reaction on uh, Russian aggression wasn't strong enough. Together with Iron Butterflies, there was another Ukrainian documentary. And the same competition on sentence, it was called 20 Days in Mariupol by Mstoslav Chernov, the Ukrainian journalist who works with Associated Press. And he captured extremely brutal and horrifying war crimes uh, that Russia was committing in Mariupol. It's horrifying. It featured multiple deaths of uh, small children. And these both films were together in the program. And for me, it's a sort of a metaphor of where we are now. If the world didn't pay enough attention to the iron butterflies, then 20 Days in Mariupol
1: happened. So we marked the first anniversary of the full-scale invasion recently, but uh, actually the war started many years ago. And uh, also my organization is uh, using tools of fact-checking actually to... Uh, Debunk disinformation and this is an important part of our um, uh, daily activities because we understand the huge role which disinformation played leading to this full-scale invasion or what role disinformation is playing on the uh, occupied territories and how disinformation is uh, impacting hearts and minds of people in Ukraine and also outside of Ukraine. So for us, it's important to follow this and to understand if Ukraine is still on the communicational agenda uh, around the world, what media uh, are covering um, in Ukraine, and uh, what actually people think around the world about this war.
0: Yeah, and... You all touched on something that I was going to ask about next, which is what might be eclipsed by thinking about the current situation in Ukraine as, you know, the one year anniversary of the full scale invasion. In other words, as you all mentioned, this is a conflict that has, in fact, been going on for Uh, Nearly a decade and certainly with tensions going back, you know, even before that. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to what we gain or lose by thinking about the war in terms of the anniversary, the one year anniversary, which obviously there's been, you know, so much discussion
2: about. Well, certainly this employment of framework, of anniversary framework, uh, reveals or reflects rather media logic, so the way media work with such topics. We can criticize that. We can see flaws in this approach, and certainly there are many, but on the other hand, In this particular situation, I think that we are trying to be pragmatic as Ukrainians. So like any attention is good, even if it's within the framework of anniversary uh, that can be criticized. So I would just reiterate that it is important to not forget about what's happening between anniversaries, between big dates. And uh, I understand that sometimes media and journalists also struggle how they can bring attention to to those topics uh, because the attention of public is limited, certainly. So um, I would also encourage journalists to think both in terms of media logic that is sometimes required from them, but also try to be maybe brave, sometimes braver than expected from them in the routine work and highlight and display the things that are happening in such places like Ukraine now.
0: Daria, you talked about media logic, and that's a really good transition to thinking about what's working and what's not working in terms of journalism in and around Ukraine. Where has Western journalism gotten it right, and where has it fallen short in terms of its coverage
2: of the Ukraine conflict? I mean, there is so so much content about Ukraine, and very often uh, there are great pieces, great examples of in-depth journalism, investigative journalism, like, for instance, um, investigations of the New York Times or Wall Street Journal about the war crimes in Bucha and in other places in Kiev region, when they managed to use the resources that they have, which are very often lacking in Ukraine. For Ukrainian media and do a lot of great reporting. At least that's my impression based on my consumption of news that there are many more angles compared to, let's say, 2014. So there is more interest in Ukrainian culture, more interest in different groups and communities in Ukraine. So it's not as One-sided, so it's not only about this, you know, geopolitical level, and so I think that's also something that has to be welcomed: this um, change or shift of frames from these big geopolitical games to like actual understanding and actual producing knowledge about Ukraine, Ukrainian society in its uh, in its complexity.
1: I would totally agree with Daria because 2022 became kind of a turning point for journalism because previously there were a lot of uncertainty, as she said, and a lot of doubts. But after 2022, I was speaking to a lot of European journalists, for example, and they said for them that was a complete turning point because after they've been to Bucha, and saw so with their own eyes, the war crimes committed by Russia. For them, it was absolutely clear question where they are in that conflict. So it's it was not anymore about this uh, double sidedism, you know, of this. Like, yes, Russia is bad, but probably Ukraine is doing something wrong, and they should be, you know, both taken with, you know, suspicious, you know, the actions. So after 2022, that became absolutely kind of a, a watershed moment for most of the journalists, but not not for all so it's uh, interesting how actually journalism is evolving with with this war
3: I agree with uh, Yevhen and Daria I remember the early days of full scale invasion the first months of 2022 when there were all this opinion pieces all of a sudden in American media and it was like at the same time when they published all those horrible photos from liberated Kiev region you can see these opinion pieces by so called experts from this uh, international think tanks uh, saying that we need reconciliation there is no need of sending weapons to Ukraine because it won't change anything and for me it felt like gaslighting because at that moment Russia is the aggressor, What Russia doesn't want to commit to peace talks and uh, they just need to leave our territory and everything will be fine And Reconciliation is possible only after the justice is done.
0: I want to think now a little bit too, I mean, we've been highlighting Western journalism and how Western journalism has, you know, gotten this conflict right or wrong in certain ways, but I'd also like to think about how journalism in Ukraine has changed since the full-scale invasion began and how you've seen it change, you know, over the last decade. How are Ukrainian journalists and newsrooms doing now and what the state of play is in journalism in Ukraine broadly?
2: Well, certainly Ukrainian media and journalists have been uh, affected a lot. So there is some statistics, some data on the number of Um, newsrooms that had to basically stop their operations or relocate to other regions. So these are like many dozens of newsrooms of media. And of course, well, first of all, you have to understand that uh, the economy is in extremely poor shape in Ukraine right now for quite understandable reasons. So that also means that the media market has suffered a lot. And so there is definitely a lot of restructuring of the media market and we will see how it develops further, so we have to wait a bit to see that. Uh, Suddenly Ukrainian media and journalists have been suffering from the lack of resources, and not only financial resources, but also human resources. I've been um, interviewing some journalists recently and uh, editors, and I've heard from uh, many editors that they basically lack people. Some of the male journalists joined the army, um, some female journalists left the country. Many journalists feel significant um, psychological pressure. They've been working like really hard for the last year. So some of them decide that they can no longer continue doing that. On the other hand, we can also see some developments happening. For instance, many investigative journalists started investigating war crimes. So there is this whole group of journalists and outlets that are busy documenting war crimes trying to investigate war, war crimes so that could be that could bring some important um, results for Ukraine so but in general i would say that the situation is definitely very difficult for ukrainian media and journalists
1: yeah i actually can second that view describing how my team is working it's really very difficult from all points of view including the people who've been fighting with disinformation for the last nine years, they have very uh, kind of significant uh, psychological impact on them. We see also how People are exhausted by uh, working conditions. For example, the lack of electricity during the winter time, uh, blackouts, the absence of internet, and uh, the general feeling of uncertainty, uh, which also doesn't play um, well. So, and uh, in terms of support, for example, we see how much donors are happy to support any Russian media organization which relocates somewhere to the west. You know, and uh, that's. Uh, uh, mostly about survival, it's not about development, it's not about conceptualizing the future of Ukrainian media market. It's just uh, to survive and to continue some operations, that it's pretty much uh, metaphorical also compared to the uh, military aid coming to Ukraine, so that's just enough to make for another two-month period, you know, three-month period, but that's not about the, the development for the future.
3: I also wanted to add that since I was working with international media, it's quite expensive to report from the war zone. And uh, if compared to the peaceful time, even uh, speaking of transportation, you need a car, you need a fuel and uh, in the beginning, there were big shortages of fuel. The uh, prices increased dramatically. And uh, you cannot just take a train uh, from, you know, from point A to point B of the, because of the security reasons. Uh, everyone preferred to travel on cars. And, uh, you know, international media have that resources. But uh, for local teams, it can be challenging and
1: just expensive. Yes. And and there is one more aspect which uh, puts uh, Ukrainian journalists sometimes in kind of less uh, advantageous position because they complain that foreign journalists has more access now to the front line. Uh, They have preferences with access and Ukrainian media are having a lot of uh, limitations in getting access to the front line and that put also them into very kind of unfair uh, position compared to their foreign colleagues.
3: I agree because I even know speakers like Ukrainian uh, politicians or NGO workers who actually said that because there were so many requests from media to comment on something, they preferred to talk with international media because uh, this way you get broader attention and more
0: views. And, you know, so that's another. I agree with that. Yes. I'd like to tease that dynamic out a bit more. How do Ukrainian journalists and media organizations see the relatively recent and intense involvement of Western journalists in Ukraine? Is it welcome? Is it seen as disruptive to Ukraine's own media landscape? Could you shed light on how people in the field are thinking about that dynamic?
2: Well, I think it's not that easy to have a full picture. Certainly one would have to, I don't know, make a survey of journalists asking about their experience. Well, first of all, Most Ukrainians, especially those who work in the media, journalists who know how it is important to have this visibility, they are glad to see that Ukraine attracts foreign journalists. They are glad to see that there's a lot of content uh, produced as a result of that. Also, many Ukrainian journalists use this opportunity to work with foreign media. Sometimes um, they work as fixers and, well, there's like the entire conversation about the uh, justice, injustice, with regard to fixer work, but I could I could see some examples of Ukrainian journalists helping, becoming like local producers also for uh, foreign media and trying to do their best to show Ukrainian perspective because they know the local context a lot, so they know how to find heroes, experts, and they add this layer of local context, which which is good. Certainly, there there is some one could call it maybe envy for the resources that um, many foreign media have. Uh, For example, I interviewed one of the Ukrainian uh, freelance journalists who says that he, well, he basically often works as a fixer with foreign media in order to earn money so that he could then go and make his own reports uh, from the front line. So he's like really eager to do that coverage from the front line, but he lacks resources. And he also provided all these calculations that Elena mentioned, like how much it costs to hire a car, uh, fuel, um, hotels, uh, and all other things.
1: Also, some Ukrainian journalists are complaining that the coverage uh, in Western media in recent months became, so to say, less optimistic about the outcome of this war and uh, they cast doubts about Ukraine's uh, possibility for this spring counter offensive, which was much promised, you know, and other things. So we see how the... Tone of the coverage changes little by little because, again, of this kind of uh long continuity of this war, very pace um, of the events uh, connected to it. And that's uh, also one of the kind of points of complaint that uh, international media are now less uh, kind of uh, optimistic about what actually Ukraine can uh, achieve uh, as a result of this war. So, uh, But uh, that's definitely also a question if it's uh, kind of a pure, you uh, know, media sentiment, or it's more infused through kind of political feelings, you know, so it's it's still kind of an open question.
0: and to your point about sentiment in the media about the conflict in Ukraine shifting in the past few months, I'd like to switch gears and talk a little bit about disinformation, which some have argued um, is part of the reason why projections for the war in Ukraine are looking maybe a bit more bleak than they have in the past in the media. Maybe disinformation is, is to blame for this sentiment shift in some ways. And so I'd like to hear from you all, what is on your mind at the moment regarding the role of disinformation at this point over a year into the full-scale invasion? And what can you know, recent events kind of tell us about what we should be looking out for?
1: As soon as Russia would be losing on the front line, and we see they have less and less uh, achievements, definitely they would switch to those uh, kind of non kinetic domains where they still can dominate. And obviously, disinformation is one of those domains. And the situation with journalists and with um, increased uh, volume of disinformation definitely says that they uh, opt to use this kind of non kinetic instrument. To achieve more political leverage in this situation, and also I think they would more trying to use uh, instruments like intelligence leaks, for example, which they can use for their own benefit. And also, cyber domain would be one of the fields where Russia is still can uh, use its, its its potential. So we see how uh, the ge- gear shifting from from kinetic to non-kinetic instruments. It doesn't mean that Russia is interested. To stall their fighting on the front line, they just don't have capacity to advance much over there. But they would also combine all those two scenes, uh, you know, all together. That's what my prediction. Is
2: yeah, I I agree, and I think that now there is much less content about like Ukrainians, the stories from Ukraine, but there is much more content like around Ukraine. And again, Ukraine in this case. So we've been saying that how excited we were that Ukraine gained more agency in the discussion, in the conversations, in the media coverage over the last year. But now we can see that, again, this agency is being a bit slided away, while rather the coverage centers on these big games, um, including the games with
1: intelligence. So that is certainly a
2: quite boring signal.
1: I agree with what Daria said, that we see uh, the shift in focus in this conversation, and that's very worrisome, because previously we saw a lot of coverage of, uh, you know, how great Ukraine was doing, achievements of survival, huge resilience, and th- that was kind of a heroic discourse, heroic narrative, which kept the attention to Ukraine alive and actually kept people trying to help to Ukraine because if they see that this is a success story, you always want kind of to to, to be on the side of of something good, you know. But when the focus started to shift, and that's exactly what Russia was trying to do, they want to move the focus from, from Ukraine itself to the the numerous domestic issues within each country and try to exploit those problems which are over there, political problems, economic problems, financial problems. And that's because of Ukraine, you know, because Ukraine doesn't want peace. We would see, you know, the more unemployment, more war spending, you know, and other things. And that works for many countries. So, of course, uh, we did not expect that the resilience in other countries would last that long, you know. Uh, but slightly, the, the, the local problems uh, start dominating uh, the political agenda. And that's exactly what Russian disinformation wanted to achieve.
3: I want the world to understand that Russia has quite a big experience in conducting information warfare. And uh, sometimes I see on social media journalists laughing from Russian state uh, TV, and uh, it's just one of the examples of Russian propaganda. It's sort of one of the most obvious one, which is it's quite rubbish. Everyone knows it, but it's very easy to spot on, but it's not the only one. And when Ukrainians telling you that certain things that happen, certain narratives that uh, appear of a sudden in the media. It's not some kind of conspiracy theory. We are not too emotional. We are not crazy. It's something that we notice because... First of all, Ukrainians uh, all speak Russian. I mean, everyone, all all Ukrainians know Russian and uh, all Ukrainians experience all this uh, Russian narratives uh, trying to attack us, our country for years. Ukrainians are quite an expert in in, uh, Russian propaganda and the world has to think about it more and pay attention more to this.
0: Elena, you raised the point that, you know, there's some disinformation that might feel so obvious, um, like watching Russian state TV anchors or something. But then you've all also mentioned the ways in which, you know, disinformation can be so nuanced and so ingrained and contextual, um, you know, something that might be so obviously disinformation to Someone from Ukraine might feel like it's up for debate for someone who is watching from Europe or or the U.S. And so how do we get people attuned to to the nuances of disinformation? How do we encourage those who consume the news to be critical of what they're seeing, even when that disinformation is so nuanced?
3: Well, the thing that comes to mind for me is that the journalists who create this uh, news, uh, they need to hire local experts, local producers, journalists who will explain to them all the contexts and all the nuances in in a particular field. And uh, I- I'm talking about this because I worked as a local producer, the fixer for NPR since uh, the full-scale invasion. And I-, I was that person who tried to explain to the media that, you know, there are certain issues that require the you know the knowledge of a local producer and just uh, remembering that experience of uh, working as a local producer with international media there was this special moment like really really surreal moment in January 2022 when all of a sudden uh, all these international reporters just appeared in Kiev downtown and they were just you know hanging around eating in restaurants and sort of just waiting. And most of these journalists, they took the possible invasion really seriously. And they were quite anxious. And actually, they were constantly asking the locals of like, why are you not preparing? Like, it's going to be something bad going to happen. And why are you not reacting properly, which was also quite like surreal and weird of, like, we just continue living. And a lot of people were trying to explain that, you know, the war already has started.
1: Also, speaking of countering disinformation, so here we can use the same analogy as uh, Olena suggested with a kind of freelancer who can help the journalists to understand the context. So that's exactly what fact-checkers are doing for other people to understand the wider context of disinformation, how it works, what narratives it exploits. Uh, and uh, so from this point of view, it's very important that people would uh, uh, pay attention to what fact-checkers are doing because it's really a kind of a part of our uh, media literacy-wide efforts. So we, we, we educate people by constantly telling them that not every piece of information they consume is actually journalism, even if someone wants to portray it as it is, you know. And we, we've been doing that constantly since 2014, and I think because of this kind of long period of, of, of our efforts, we were somehow uh, successful in uh, raising awareness and building resilience. But even in Ukraine, where there is kind of uh, price of information is you sometimes it's life or death question you know people are still sometimes quite kind of ignorant about the very basic rules of how to to deal with information on what platforms to rely. For example, a lot of people in Ukraine are using Russian telegram as a main source uh, of information but also for communicational purposes uh, including government and we've been arguing for quite a long period of time that it's not a safe platform it's Russia created russia controlled. But uh, for people, it's just a question of comfort. And if they're accustomed to, uh, to use it, they uh, just do not want to change anything. And also, Ukrainian government is extensively using it by this, uh, basically legitimizing it as a, as a legit instrument of uh, as a social media platform. You know, And this is kind of weird because in the times of the war, you should even be more worried about how... Platforms you are using are safe, uh, information you are spreading is safe and other things. So it should be of a primary uh, concern because disinformation, as I said, became integral part of this war.
2: Well, the media literacy question, I would say that it's not even like, you know, a million dollar question. It's a billion dollar question. So there are so many... Uh, attempts to research and to come up with some policy suggestions, and with different levels of success. So, but still, there is no s- certain answer. So, what, how media literacy should be done in order to achieve what is um, hoped to be achieved? Uh, the uh, uh, well-informed and conscious media consumer. And of course, the media environment is changing so fast that uh, all the programs uh, created with the idea of explaining so how this media ecology works, uh, what actors are, are there and what intentions they could have and what kind of content they could produce so wh- while these educational programs are created this the media sphere is changing so it's it's hard to catch up with that but certainly it's a it's a matter of um, education in general it's a matter of teaching children and then adults to have a more nuanced understanding of the world because what we see with disinformation is that very often it caters to this black and white picture of the world and simple explanations. Uh, On the other hand, it also weaponizes critical thinking to some extent because sowing a lot of mistrust to everything. So another crucial aspect is building decent institutions, networks of institutions and also assist in building trust for, that, for those institutions because I think that this matter of lack of trust and too much cynicism which often turns into nihilism in many cases is also a problematic issue.
0: Speaking of institutions like, you know, governments, but also speaking of platforms like Telegram, I immediately think about Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who is a prolific Telegram user, or at least was at the beginning of the war, as well as Twitter and other social media platforms, and has also really been a major feature in Western news, especially in terms of the coverage of of the conflict. And I'm, I'm curious to what extent you all see... Ukraine's leadership as being important to the media environment that has emerged around the conflict. To what extent has, you know, maybe President Zelensky's own self-produced content or, or relationship to the media, would you would you say, you know, influenced how this conflict has been covered or how it's developed? Well, in the early days of uh,
3: Full Scale Invasion, I was the one who would translate all these videos that would appear with Zelensky every morning until they their team added subtitles, with help, which helped everyone. <laughs> but it was really instrumental for, for media. They loved to use uh, the quotes, and uh, which were well-recorded, which appeared every day, and I think it was really helpful for journalists, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I, I can quote here... President Zelensky, who said that Ukraine would surprise you, you know, and I think that how Ukraine was communicating... Uh, this war since the very first days, you know, was very surprising element because nobody uh, expected that and uh, usually people were not uh, expecting that uh, doing videos would become one of the major efforts coming from the president leading the, the country at war, but it was important, it was successful, especially at the very early stage of this and definitely it helped to map this war on the the mind uh, map of many, many people around the world because he was speaking to media, to university communities, to parliaments. And I mean, of course, the, the time for that is over. So definitely because in communication, you always need to to kind of reinvent its, yourself, you know, and you always need what is called communication peaks. And for that, you should always invent different instruments because, again, with a, pace how people are now using media they want every minute something else from you And and, and Ukraine is is competing with many other events around the world and a lot of domestic events, you know. So the question is what else Ukraine can do from a communicational point of view to continue mapping itself, importantly, around the world. And uh, so this is uh, uh, kind of the open question. So we still need to see with what else we can surprise the world
2: also agree that uh, the big question is what's next, because no matter how likable one is, at some point one has to come up with something new in order to c- continue generating uh, the interest. And uh, Ukrainians have proved to be really successful in leading the struggle. But then the big question is how Ukrainians are going to win the struggle and what they are going to do suggest to the world after winning the struggle so but let's be hopeful that we will come up with some creative solutions as well.
0: To end us on maybe a reflective note, I'd like to pick your brains as to what kinds of opportunities you might see emerging from this moment in Ukraine. What can we be hopeful about in terms of lessons learned or opportunities that might arise from this challenging moment? Or what are you thinking about going into the next phase?
2: We mentioned several times about the world discovering Ukraine in our conversation. uh, But I think it is also important to understand that Ukrainians are discovering themselves, Ukrainian society. And for me, that's the biggest source of potential opportunities, as you are asking, Liz. So I really hope that this rediscovery of Ukrainian identity and this rediscovery of power that uh, Ukrainian society has uh, will suggest some ways, uh, again, creative ways, uh, some new ways for Ukraine to build a prosperous society, a prosperous country and free from external influences and threats. My take might be less
3: positive. But I just want to say that if Ukraine would not be given proper security guarantees like NATO membership, we cannot really talk about those beautiful future opportunities that Ukraine might have. You know, if we will get security guarantees, we will rebuild the country. But if our Western partners would be too afraid, too slow to react, it's really hard to think what, what the future can be, actually.
1: Yeah, I would say that uh, Ukraine demonstrated a lot of miracles, uh, military mir- miracles, political, communicational, but it cannot be kind of, we cannot rely on the miracle all the time and the resilience of Ukrainian people. So I would totally support the idea of my colleagues that Ukraine really needs a lot of support. This is not Ukraine's war, this is the war which Ukraine is. Uh, forced to conduct, is, is, is forced to fight back. Uh, it's important that Ukraine would continue to see that support, because that was important from the very first day of the full-scale invasion, that Ukraine knew that we are not alone and that gave the additional efforts to people fighting. And this is not the Ukraine fights, because this is a fight for, for universal sins.
0: Well, thank you all so much for this really, really rich conversation. I really appreciate it. It was a real privilege.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.